concerning his mode of life. So while he was living at the pond, 
some of his townsmen, you know, the uh, fellow uh, inhabitants of Concord, they came to him and they made very particular inquiry uh, about his mode of life, about the way he lived, okay? Uh, and, uh, you know, like, for example, uh, did he not feel lonesome? Did he not, uh, you know, could he manage uh, to live by himself, okay? Uh, a mile from his nearest neighbor, and so on and so forth. So his townsmen had made particular inquiries about his mode of life. Uh, so he's giving us a description of his life at the point. Some people would call such a description impertinent. But to Thoreau, he says, this description is not impertinent, but considering the circumstances, very natural and pertinent. So considering whatever circumstances they are, this description seems to be very natural and pertinent. And so he continues, some have uh, asked what I got to eat. So some of his townsmen asked him what he got to eat. What did you eat? Uh, okay. If he, if I did not feel lonesome. Others have asked if he could bear living by himself on the shore of the pond. After all, man needs the company of other people. So some of his townsmen asked him if he did not feel lonely and yet others asked him if he was not afraid. After all, you know, to live uh, by yourself in the midst of the woods without anyone uh, nearby, uh, you know, it's dangerous. So uh, others have asked him if he was not afraid of living by himself and the like. And some similar questions like this. Others have been curious to learn what portions of my income I devoted to charitable purposes. Now, there is a, a principle that uh, they follow, that the Westerners follow, that is, if they have an income, they must devote some of that income to charity. That is, the upkeep of the less fortunate, upkeep of the poor, right? So, some of his townsmen uh, asked him, okay, uh, what portion of his income is devoted to charity? And some who have large families, how many poor children I maintain? So some of his children, uh, some of his townsmen had large families, you know, about uh, seven or eight children. So they were curious to know how many poor children he maintained. After all, it's uh, very difficult to, uh, to uh, you know, bring up a child because it requires a lot of care and effort. So he wanted, they wanted to know how many poor children he had maintained while he was living at the pond. He continues, I will therefore ask those of my readers who feel no particular interest in me to pardon me if I undertake to answer some of these questions in this book. So again, he's asking his readers, uh, you know, readers, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, readers' permission, you can say. He's asking his readers' permission. Uh, he says, he's, uh, he says, 
that he will answer some of these questions in this book, okay? Uh, because they may be relevant to many people, okay? They may be relevant to many people. Some of the questions he answers in this book uh, may be relevant to many people. Um, we'll see how those questions that he answers are relevant to many people later on as we continue to read the read the chapter. Uh, and then he says, in most books, the I or first person is omitted. In this, it will be retained. So, uh, um, now, those of us who study grammar, we know that the pronoun I is called the first person. It's called the first person pronoun. So, I refers to the person speaking. Okay? And, uh, you know, in most books, it is not the first person. It is not the author himself who is speaking. In most books, whether it's a story or a play or a poem, what an author generally does is he has a character who enacts the story, who, you know, who carries out the plot of the story. He has a character. So it's not, in most books, it's not the author himself who's speaking. It's not the first person who is speaking. Uh, uh, in most books, the first person is omitted. But in this book, it will be retained. But in this book, Walden, it is the first person which is speaking. That is, Thoreau is going to narrate what he has experienced, what he knows about life uh, in this book. In this book, it will be written. The first person will be written. So Thoreau speaks in his own person here. And he says, in respect to egotism, that is the main difference. So, uh, when, you know, uh, when we, when a person talks about himself, most of the time, people will say that he's egotistic, that he is self-centered. But while it may be thought of as egotism, while he may be thought of as being self-centered, uh, 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 okay. Uh, in this book, nevertheless, the first person will be retained. So he continues, we commonly do not remember that it is, after all, always the first person that is speaking. So here, uh, Thoreau makes a sort of proverbial statement. Now, Walden and most of Thoreau's writings, um, they are full of uh, proverbial sayings, okay? If you take a sentence, but any many sentences in Thoreau's writing, we can think of them as proverbs. That is, truths which are uh, which are factual for all people, for most people at least. So here he makes one such proverbial statement. He says, we commonly do not remember that it is, after all, always the first person that is speaking. So, 
uh, you know, people generally think that they are talking to others or about others, right? But, you know, um, most of the time, we're always talking about ourselves. So what we feel, what we think, what we have experienced, what our nature is, that is what is being revealed in our speech. So, so he gives, uh, he justifies that, okay? He says, you know, we do not remember that it's after all the first person that is speaking. So even when we, you know, praise others, it is actually ourselves that we are uh, praising, okay? And when we scold others, it is ourselves, our own nature that is being revealed, okay? So he justifies that. He says, I should not talk so much about myself if there were anybody else whom I knew as well. So, uh, he, here he says, you know, it's practically impossible to know anybody else whom he knows as well as himself, right? Or if you were to extend it, we do not know anybody else as well as we know ourselves. So, uh, and he says, why is the first person being retained in this book? Because he says, I should not talk so much about myself if there were no anybody else whom I knew as well. Okay? So, uh, practically, we cannot know anybody else as well as we know ourselves. So, in our speech, in our actions, in our thoughts, you know, okay? And so on and so forth. Most of the time, it is we, our character, which is being revealed. So, uh, anyway, he says, you know, that he's going to speak about his own experience because he knows about his own experience better than he knows about anybody else's experience, right? So, again, he continues to justify why he's used the first person. He says, unfortunately, I'm confined to this scene by the narrowness of my experience. By the narrowness of my experience. So, uh, okay. Uh, so, uh, he has a sort of a pair of uh, or um, he has a pair of uh, you know uh, uh, he has a point of view which is very narrow. That is, most of the time it's focused on you know, what he does and what he experiences and so on. Okay, so he's confined to the theme of himself by the narrowness of his experience. Moro, and he continues, Moro, I on my side require of every writer, first or last, a simple and sincere account of his own life and not merely what he has heard of other men's life some such account as he would send to his kindred from a distant land, or if he has lived sincerely, it must have been in a distant land to me. So here he's saying that, you know, if a person wishes to be a writer, if a person wishes to write, then the first, one of the first requirements uh, that is re required of a writer is a simple and sincere account of his own life and not merely what he has heard of other men's life. 
so many people they like to live their lives according to some rule that somebody else has invented and they would like to uh, discount their own nature they would like to subordinate themselves to the rules laid down by somebody else okay so uh, he doesn't want uh, a person to merely recount merely narrate what he has heard of other men's life and call that narration as his own life he wants from every writer a simple and sincere account of his own life okay this account that the writer gives should be such that uh, should be such that he would send to his kindred from a distant land so suppose a person travels to a distant land and there you know uh, everything has to be done by himself so and uh, he will get a first hand experience of life in a distant land so uh, the narrative that thoreau requires of every writer each and every writer is some such account some such narration of his life as you send to his kindred kindred of course is a relative from a distant land okay uh for if he has lived sincerely it must have been in a distant land to me so just now he told us that he does not know anybody else whom he knows as well as he knows himself right so here he says if a person has lived sincerely any other man has lived sincerely it must have been in a distant land to him right so it would be interesting to find out what other people's experiences of life are well you know a true and sincere account of a person's life is as distant to us okay uh, as as distant as you know a distant land like america or europe is to us right and so uh, here uh, what he is going to do is saying that he will give a simple and sincere account of his own life he is going to give us many of the details of his life at the pond and this narration of the events that happened this narration of the experiences he had at the pond huh, uh will seem to be like okay uh, will be will seem to be distant to us because we have not had any such experience okay uh he continues perhaps these pages are more particularly addressed to poor students uh, so uh, uh you know one of the reasons he wrote warden especially the chapter on economy is to help poor students you know those who cannot afford the fees those who can those who never left are uh, interested in their studies those who you know manage want to manage uh, the finances as well as the education okay uh, these most of these pages are more particularly addressed to post student right because in this chapter he tells us you know how a, a person not just a student how a person can satisfy can live happily Uh, no, if not happy, happily and comfortably, uh, if he can supply the three basic necessities for himself, 
three or four. The three basic necessities that we all know are food, clothing, and shelter. And so in this chapter, particularly in the one on economy, he tells us how we can, you know, furnish ourselves with these three basic necessities, which are essential to the life of every person. And therefore, poor students in particular will find them very helpful. So as for the rest of my readers, they'll accept such portions that apply to them. I trust that none will stretch the seeds in putting on the earth, or it may do good service to whom it fits. So as for the rest of his readers, uh, he wants them to accept such portions of the book as apply to them. Now, you know, remember that not all the books can apply to everyone, every one of us. So if uh, we read a book, most of us will be interested in the part of the book that applies to us. So perhaps we're looking for a solution to something. Perhaps we're looking for an interesting uh, information. Whatever we want, we will take that from a book. We'll take that from a poem and so on and so forth. So he says that uh, the rest of his readers, apart from they will read the book and take such portions of the book as apply to them. And he gives this proverb, I trust that none will stretch the seams in putting on the coat, for it may good, do good service to whom it fits. So to the person whom the book is suitable, it will do good service. So none of us, none of his readers, he says, should stretch the seams. Seams, of course, are the joints in a shirt, joints in a coat. Okay, well, you know, uh, so none should stretch the seams in putting on the coat. So they should not unnecessarily, uh, you know, uh, uh, they must not unnecessarily, you know, disparage uh, parts of the book because it does not apply to them. Because to the person whom the book is suitable, it will do good service. So, uh, okay. So, I would fain, he continues. Uh, now, I would fain say something not so much concerning the Chinese and Sandwich Islanders as you who read these pages were said to live in New England. Something about your condition, especially your outward condition or circumstances in this world, in this town, what it is, whether it is necessary that it be as bad as it is, whether it can be improved as well as not. And so you say, he says here, he'd rather not say something concerning the Chinese and Sandwich Islanders. Now, most of the authors in his day who wrote the nonfiction, uh, a book of travels, for example, somebody who has traveled, they would describe distant peoples, like the Chinese people. They'd go to China and describe, you know, what the Chinese do, what the Chinese customs are, what the Chinese habits are, what they eat, and so on and so forth. They describe the Chinese. Or they describe the Sandwich Islanders. The Sandwich Islands are, uh, you know, uh, somewhere in the middle of uh, either the Pacific or the Atlantic. So he says, in this book, he would not describe the Chinese or he would not describe the Sandwich Islands. 
and he is not even going to say something about them and he is going to say something about those who read these pages those who are said to live in new england he is going to address his readers he is going to uh, address the readers who are reading these pages and he says he, he tells them something about their condition especially their outward condition outward condition of circumstance in this world outward conditions means of course their living quarters the clothes they wear the food they eat and so on and so forth so uh, he would tell them something about their condition especially the outward condition or circumstances in this world in this town what it is whether it is it is necessary that it be as bad as it is so uh, you know thorubu has uh, observed a great deal of life he has observed a number of people who uh, live in concord who live in new england he has had uh, he has observed life he has read about it and he has you know experienced it and he says that the condition of the majority of his townsmen is very bad okay and he says he is going to ask him is it necessary that it be as bad as, as it is whether it cannot be improved as well as not and he is going to ask him whether the outward circumstances can not be improved okay so uh, he tells us i have traveled a good deal in concord he traveled a good deal in concord he knows all the villages not only by their names not only by their faces he knows a great deal about their life he traveled a good deal in concord and everywhere in shops and offices and fields the inhabitants appeared to me doing to be doing penance in a thousand remarkable ways so he says that everywhere in concord in the shops of concord in the offices of concord in the fields of concord the inhabitants the citizens of concord have appeared to him to be doing penance in a thousand remarkable ways penance you know uh, so uh, you know yeah, penance means of course uh, in kannada we say tapas so you know how the shopkeeper uh, lives out lives and uh, does his business he goes to the shop at uh, six o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning and he says stays in the shop till 10 o'clock at night and he does this day in and day out he does this every day every year every 10 years throughout his life so it's a bit like a penance and it's not only in the shops it's also in the offices in the offices also they continue doing this penance in the offices and the fields okay and uh, the forms of penance that uh, that they do is not just one form of penance they're doing penance in a thousand remarkable ways okay so he says what i have heard of brahmins sitting exposed to four fires and looking in the face of the sun or hanging suspended with their heads downward over flames or looking at the heavens over their shoulders until it becomes impossible for them to reduce them resume their natural position while from the twist of the neck nothing but liquids can pass into the stomach so he has heard of brahmins he has heard he's read a great deal of uh, the literature of india 
especially the Bhagavad Gita and so on and so forth. Right? He's read a lot about the Vedas, Upanishads, and uh, you know the scriptures of India. And he's heard of the Brahmins. The Brahmins uh, are the priestly class, of course. And these Brahmins were doing penance in ancient times. How did they do penance? They were sitting exposed to four fires. There were four fires in the four directions, north, east, south, west. In the four directions, there were four fires blazing. And they were sitting in the midst of these four fires, in the middle of these four fires. And, and they were looking in the face of the sun. They looked at the sun directly. So this is one form of penance that is heard of. Or another form of penance that is heard of is they were hanging suspended with the heads downward over flames. So they were hanging suspended from, uh, you know, with the heads downward and there were flames, there was a fire burning you know, below them or looking at the heavens over their shoulders until it becomes impossible for them to resume, resume their natural position. So some other uh, ancient, uh, you know, Brahmins, they did penance by, by continuously looking backward, they used to twist their back, neck, so that they look backward. Uh, or they would look at uh, the heavens above them. They would look at, you know, the sky in backward, backwards. Uh, so they would look at the sky, they would look at the heavens for so long, they would look back so long, until it becomes impossible for them to resume their natural position. So they look backwards for years, decades together, until it becomes impossible for them to look forward again, or look in front again. While from the twist of the neck, nothing but liquids can pass into the stomach. So because the throat is twisted backwards, they cannot, they cannot consume anything except liquids. Only liquids can pass into the stomach. Yet other forms of, yet other Brahmins, they were doing penance, while dwelling, chained for life at the foot of a tree. Okay? Or measuring with their bodies like caterpillars the breadth of vast empire. Uh, so, the, some Brahmins would dwell, they would live at the foot of a tree. They'd be chained to the tree. This is one form of penance they undertook. And yet others would do Ural Seve, what they call, they would measure with their bodies like caterpillars the breadth of vast empire. So, they'd oh, they do this, uh, you know, uh, they would measure with their bodies. They go from the north to the south, from the east to the west. This is another, yet another form of penance that they used to do. Or standing on one leg on the top of pillars, even these forms of conscious penance are hardly more incredible than astonishing than the scenes which I daily witness. So even these forms of conscious penance, conscious penance means all these Brahmins did this, uh, did, did this uh, uh, consciously. They intentionally did it. And these forms of conscious penance are not more incredible or astonishing than the scenes which he daily witnesses in Concord. When he sees the shopkeeper, when he sees the farmers, when he sees the officers of Concord, doing the routine work, doing the work. Because these forms of conscious penance which these ancient Brahmins undertook, they're not more astonishing, they're not more incredible than the scenes which are daily witnessed in the streets and 
uh, you know, uh, dwellings of Concord. And he continues that 12 labors of Hercules were trifling in comparison to those which my neighbors have undertaken. The 12 labors of Hercules, of course, that refers to uh, Hercules, one of the mythological creatures, uh, mythological uh, heroes in the Greek pantheon, right? Mythological heroes in the Greek pantheon. So Hercules was given 12 tasks to do. He was given 12 labors to complete. And even Hercules was a superhuman uh, uh, immortal. He was a superhuman immortal. And Thoreau says, even the 12 labors of Hercules, for example, one of the labors of Hercules was to clean the Augean stables. King Augeas had uh, a large number of horses which he housed in the stables. And these stables had not been cleaned for many years. And one of the labors of Hercules was to clean the Augean stables. So what he did was, he rerouted a, rerouted a river through the stables, thus cleansing them. So that was a superhuman piece of labor. And he did uh, 11 more like this. He, uh, he killed the Hydra. The Hydra was a poisonous snake. And uh, you know it lived in a it lived in a lake, and uh, when okay, so he did the twelve in, incredible supernatural feats of uh, uh, labor, right? Even these twelve labors of Hercules were trifling; they were small in comparison, okay, with those which my neighbors have undertaken, okay. So, uh, well, okay, we'll have to stop there now. Uh, but uh, those uh, who wish to see the PDF uh, of this uh, text, they can just go to Google and type in Walden or Life in the Woods uh, PDF and they'll get a copy. So, this is available on the internet for free. Walden, Life in the Woods, Henry David Thoreau PDF. You'll get this. Uh, book in the PDF form. Okay, okay, Mishala. We stop. They will continue. Sir, in the next okay, so thank you. It was a very informative this thing uh, session. Uh, so thank you guys uh, for listening to this uh, seventh episode of uh, this podcast. I hope you're enjoying this uh, series. And thanks to Sundar sir once again uh, for joining this podcast. And uh, I just wish you all of you a good night. And uh, stay safe. Be happy. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Once again. Okay, Nishal. Thank you. Good night.